The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a good deed in the power of my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. When the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Vivian was just about three months old when we asked Jim and Nancy to be her godparents. We had known Jim and Nancy for about five years, and by chronological age, they were old enough to be grandparents, but they weren't grandparents yet. So when Nancy was holding three-month-old Vivian and I said, Michael and I would like for you and Jim to be Vivian's godparents, Nancy said, oh yes, this is wonderful. Jim, isn't this wonderful? And Jim, who was a man of few words, said, now hold on there, Nancy. We have to renounce Satan. Let's think about this. <laughs> Indeed, that is a part of our baptismal covenant. We have three renunciations and three affirmations, and all three renunciations have to do with Satan and the evil forces and powers of darkness. And the affirmations have to do with our belief and faith in God and Jesus Christ. So when I gather families together before baptism and review with them these renunciations and affirmations, I give them an opportunity to tell me what they think Satan actually looks like. Usually when I ask them to describe Satan, there is a moment of silence. People's eyes dart to one another, the group that they've come with. You can see this sense of like, is this a trick question or should I know this? Finally, someone says something like, uh, red with pointy ears? 
maybe a spear tail or a pitchfork or something? And they illustrate the point that I want to make beautifully. We don't know what Satan looks like. We don't know what the evil forces or the powers of darkness look like. But we know we don't want them. And we know that they're out there somewhere. Perhaps you've witnessed it firsthand. Or maybe you know someone who has. And so I invite those parents of those infants as they think about baptism to own the words they are given to say. I renounce them. I say, remember, you have the power of your words, so use your full breath. Come from your diaphragm. This is your chance to say, I don't want that. I don't want that anywhere near this young person. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling the disciples in ever-increasing detail what following him is really about. He is revealing to them in clear and certain increments that being a disciple is not for the faint of heart. While the disciples are concerning themselves with who is in and who is out of this faithful community, Jesus reminds them that there are much bigger issues to address, such as the issue of evil. In the face of such life and death matters, we don't have time for discussions about who is in and who is out. In fact, to busy ourselves with conversation about who is in and who is out when everyone is working to this, toward the same goal, through the same means, that is, working toward driving out evil in the name of Jesus, Jesus says to have this conversation about who is in and who is out would be like placing a stumbling block in front of the faithful. And Jesus will not stand for this. Violent language is used to emphasize the intensity of the fight against evil. This may be jarring for us to hear, but consider the story of Oedipus in Greek mythology. The story of Oedipus is from the 5th century before the Common Era and tells of a man who fulfills the prophecy given at his birth that he will kill his father and marry his mother. Perhaps you read this story in middle or high school, and you, like me, were scandalized by the part in the story where he has children with his very own mother. This myth had been around for hundreds of years by the time of Jesus, and we, like the disciples, can hear the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is tapping into the gut reaction of facing such evil and illustrates with the analogies that he gives us that fighting evil is going to cost you something. I want to be clear that I do not think that Jesus is expecting us to take his words literally. We are not to cut off our hand or our foot or to gouge out our eye. But we do have to realize that facing evil is dangerous work and there is always the potential of it costing us something dear. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew something about the face of evil and the cost that comes from addressing it. In 1934, he was just 28 years old and a Lutheran pastor in Germany. That year, he joined Karl Barth and some other German Christians 
in a statement against the growing Nazi regime. He and Barton others wanted the state Lutheran church to take a stand against Hitler and the Nazi regime. But the state Lutheran church did not. Bonhoeffer and others created the Confessing Church, a movement in Germany which put their lives in great danger. He created a seminary to educate promising clergymen in the practice of being the Confessing Church. The seminary was driven underground because of Nazi pressure. In 1939, Bonhoeffer came to New York to teach at Union Theological Seminary. But he stayed only two weeks. He was unable to stay in such a peaceful existence here in the States, knowing the exile and suffering of his fellow Christians in the confessing church back in Germany. It wasn't known until much later that Bonhoeffer and his brother-in-law had joined forces with some high-ranking officials in the Nazi regime to plot the assassination of Hitler. They made two attempts, and both of them failed. After the second attempt, the conspirators were found out and imprisoned. Bonhoeffer and his fellow conspirators were moved from prison to prison as the Allied troops liberated the prison camps. And at the age of 39, just one month before the end of the war, he was hanged by the Gestapo. Bonhoeffer's story isn't told too often. I imagine it's because of the complexity of the fact that a Christian minister was involved in an assassination plot. I find it interesting that they failed in their attempts, and I wonder if it's because they were using tools and processes that were unfamiliar to them. It's difficult to practice secrecy and deceit when your whole life has been dedicated to confessing out loud what you believe in, even in difficult circumstances. I know that I at first felt hesitancy about referring to Bonhoeffer in my sermon today because I don't want to send a mixed message. Jesus' teachings do not condone violence. When he saw religious leaders preparing to stone a woman who was caught in adultery, he interrupted their holy efforts and prevented her stoning. On the morning of his own crucifixion, when the soldiers came to take him violently, and one overzealous soldier cut off the ear of the slave, of the high priest, Jesus said, in summary, this isn't how we're going to do this. He healed the slave's ear and went with the soldiers without any violent persuasion. So I want to be clear. There is nothing in the Gospels that permits me to condone violence. I simply don't have permission, based on Jesus' teachings, to preach a violent means toward the end of evil. I bring up Bonhoeffer today because he lived in a time when evil had a very clear face, and he wrestled with how to address this very certain evil. He knew that as a Christian, he had to wrestle with how to address evil. He had to try to figure out what to do in response to evil. In what is arguably his most famous work, which is entitled The Cost of Discipleship, he writes this. 
the disciple is dragged out of his relative security into a life of absolute insecurity. That is, in truth, into the absolute security and safety of the fellowship of Jesus. At this halfway point in the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus journeys quickly toward Jerusalem, teaching his disciples along the way of what it means to follow him, he is telling them that it's going to get pretty bad at times. And they may worry that following him will mean that they will lose it all. And they may wonder whether following him is really worth the cost. But as Jesus is teaching them, and Bonhoeffer knew, their only security, the disciples' only security, their only safety, is in fellowship with Jesus. We must practice our obedience in following Jesus so that we are prepared to face down the very real evil in the world when it presents itself. Obedience to Christ is the true mark of discipleship. In fact, and Bonhoeffer says this too, being a disciple means to obey Christ. You can't be a disciple without obedience to Christ. We, as 21st century disciples, discipline ourselves to follow Christ in thought and word and deed. And as the people of St. Stephen's, we commit together to live the word of God and pass it on. We commit to live the word of God and pass it on because that is what a disciple does. Amen. Mm -hmm.